Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape of this election. And as usual, we have an amazing panel today with two of my fellow bleary-eyed, sleep-deprived Lincoln Project co-founders, independent political strategist and our captain on this ship, Reed Galen. It's great to have you, Reed. Thanks, Ron. And legendary ad maker and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. How you doing, Rick? I'm doing well, Ron. So, gentlemen, we're recording on Thursday morning, and as it currently stands, there are four to five battleground states left to call, depending on where you look. Pennsylvania, Georgia, North Carolina, and Nevada are all too close to call. Fox News and the Associated Press have both called Arizona for Joe Biden. The New York Times, CNN, and NBC show Biden leading in Arizona by three points and about 70,000 votes, but have not called the state. And as it stands right now, at least Michigan and Wisconsin have flipped for Biden. Arizona and Pennsylvania have likely flipped from Trump in 2016 to Biden. And there's also still a chance that Georgia and possibly North Carolina could go for Biden. There is also a chance that Joe Biden will reach the 270 expected electoral votes he needs between when we record and when this episode comes out. So now all the caveats are out of the way. Reed, looking at the states that have not been called, Mm -hmm. how confident are you that Joe Biden will be the president of the United States in January 2021? I'm pretty confident. I think that, you know, as we like to joke here, I was told there would be no math. But from people who do (laughs) math for a living, I understand that you know, with the with the ballots left to be counted, with the rates at which they're coming in, um, you know, whether or not it's it's you know <clears throat> Arizona or Pennsylvania, um, you know, Biden's going to get there. He's at two hundred sixty four electoral votes as we record here. So, frankly, just any of them will do. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be all of them. It, Pennsylvania obviously would be the biggest, but Nevada would do it too. So um, I think it's, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. Some of these places are closer. One, I think it's closer than I thought it would be, but I remember, you know, Rick's admonition going back to the beginning of this year, which was, this was always going to be a game of small numbers. And it turned out he was right. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in the last 24 hours have started to see their landscape is going to shift. The paths for Trump to get to 270 are now essentially non-existent. Um, he has to pull a, a, a complete inside straight to do it. It's not going to happen. Um, but a lot of people were disappointed because Democrats didn't capture the Senate. Yeah, We put in probably, I don't know, 10 or 15% of our effort into the Senate stuff. Our major efforts were always about getting rid of Donald Trump. Our voter contact efforts, all the things that people didn't see under the surface. You know, I've often described the Lincoln Project as an iceberg. Yeah. And the tip of the iceberg, um, which a lot of our critics on the right and the left are talking about, they're like, oh, those flashy ads, those didn't, those didn't win the race. Well, no, they didn't. <laughs> they weren't intended to. They weren't intended to. They were intended to set the narrative. They were intended to, to distract Donald Trump. They were intended to go into states and the and the ads that folks didn't pay as much attention to because they weren't the flashy big, you know, national stories 
were the ones grinding away on digital and on voter contact and our team of guys who in the political shop and the digital shop who went every day and into these states like Arizona and Wisconsin and Michigan and ground away to reach out and get Republican voters. And we always set the Bannon line. Steve Bannon said it himself. If the Lincoln Project can move three or 4% of Republicans, they're going to win. Well, the numbers are looking like right now we move 10 to 12% of Republicans in these states. Yeah. And and what it wasn't exclusively our doing, but we were certainly the first with the most yeah. in most of these places. Yeah. And we were certainly pushing in as hard as we could in ways that surprised um, even our our allies mm-hmm. in you know because this was a movement of many many groups working in these states you know when you look at it it I don't know Reed how much we spent on Senate Senate races probably fifteen yeah fifteen so let's we put about fifteen million dollars into Senate races well the Democratic Senate Committee spent two hundred and the candidates spent two hundred and ninety million dollars combined and a hundred million of that was just yeah. Jamie and Amy <laughs> right I know there are people like I said this morning who are angry. That the Senate wasn't captured. Yeah. Well, here's our here's where the Lincoln Project is in the in the ecosystem right now. We're the scrappy young ball team. Okay. We come out of nowhere. We somehow get to the World Series and win it. And and the morning after, people are saying, "Well, you didn't throw a no hitter in the last game. Therefore, it all sucks." What? <laughs> yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. The presidency of the United States, held by Donald Trump, has been ended. And for whatever role we played in that. I am going to be enormously proud of it. Mm-hmm. I know our team kicked ass every day. They did. We took folks. There were only about forty of us on the on the staff. We had about sixty or seventy interns and thousands of volunteers. But we went from from you know seven seven people with a good idea and an editorial in the New York Times to to running an eighty million dollar startup to defeat Donald Trump, and we did. Yeah. You know, we, we, we will go, I will go to my grave knowing that we played a key role. We broke him over and over again. He, he, he responded to a group of people who any other candidate would have said, I'm not going to elevate them. I'm going to ignore them. I'm going to walk away. Um, we were able to get inside their loop all the time, be ahead of them on what they were going to communicate on. We were able to frame big issues in key States. And the fact of the matter is, you know, there are an awful lot of people on the left and the right who are unhappy with the Lincoln Project. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a while I was thinking, oh man, everybody's mad at us. And then I thought, that's okay. Good. Yeah. Good. You know what? We did something totally different. Yeah. And and the ossified politics in this country, in those two big silos, they needed something totally different. I mean, I do want to say that, you know, whether or not it's Republican voters against Trump, um, the folks who you know, took Operation Grant in Ohio mm-hmm. and, you know, made it their own, even if we didn't get there. Um, yeah, as, as Rick noted, the tens of thousands of, of volunteers in our Facebook groups across the country, um, you know, it's not just the guys and gals you hear on the podcast or you see on TV or whatever it is. It's all those folks went out and made it happen every day. Um, I would also say that, you know, I mean, I think our underlying conceit has always been candor and honesty. You know, I was upset on election night that like Joe Biden didn't win Florida. Yeah. But I shouldn't have been because Madrid and the political guys said, Hey, you know what? In late September, we're not going to get there. We need to leave. Yeah. He said the same thing about North North Carolina. Carolina. That's right. I remember (laughs) that conversation about North Carolina. With our ability to spend and the, and the 
inefficiency of spending yeah. money in those places. It yeah. didn't make sense for us to be there anymore. Right. Right. So we right. pulled stakes right. and we went double down in Pennsylvania, yeah. went into Wisconsin, doubled down in Arizona. And, you know, we made massive investments with yeah. the African-American community in Philadelphia, um, understood what it is we needed to do. Actually, we made a last minute, I don't know, one, $1.5, million push into Georgia. Yep. And we won't take total credit for that because it's an impossibility to determine, but I'm glad we were there. Absolutely. I'm glad we were pushing in the right direction. And, and I, but, I think if we had not been, and, and yeah. folks, where do we play in Georgia? We played in the suburbs of Atlanta. We played in the suburbs of Savannah. Those areas were places that um, have turned out to be yep. the big push that has now put Tom or Tom Purdue. <laughs> Tom Purdue is a famous Georgia consultant. Um, <laughs> David Purdue is a U.S. senator uh, that have now put David. What about Purdue. Frank Purdue? <laughs> those are fan. good chickens. <laughs> those, are, those are tender chickens. Um, but has, has now put put David Purdue into a runoff. And I, I will say another thing. You know, we spent, as Reed noted. We, we pushed into the Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, while we were taping this podcast on Thursday morning uh, at nine o'clock mountain, the news is broken that Bucks County, Pennsylvania flipped blue. Whoa. Where we dumped a, uh, we, that was a, there was a big splash of our resources in Bucks County and the collar counties around Philadelphia. And that state is closing fast. Um, and we are very proud that we catalyzed some of that. And then again, as Reed says, you know, we're not taking credit for every single vi- part of this victory, but we're also not going to sit here and say, uh, say, oh, you know, nothing happened. We didn't win the Senate. Therefore, all of our work was invalid. Get out of here. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this because it's been well over 24 hours since the polls closed and we still haven't confirmed who won the election. We knew that this was likely going to be the case. And, you know, Mike has talked about the vote counting process a couple of times on the podcast, but like, can you talk a little bit about the difference between knowing we would need to wait for a winner and then actually living through it? You know, the, the election of, of 1870, I believe took almost a month to resolve. So, you know, this is not, we are in, we are a short attention span society and we're spoiled by this stuff. And, People who truly loathed Donald Trump and came out to vote in their many, many millions, they wanted that satisfaction. And look, as Reed said, and we've talked about this a lot, I've worked on this for five years to push back against this guy. I have craved that moment. And I still don't have it as the time of this recording. I know we're close. We're one, just a fraction of a moment away from it. But But it's still not there. But it's still not there. And until it is there. Everybody holds their breath because Donald Trump is this escape artist and this con artist yeah. that you have to, you can never let this guy off the mat for a second yeah. because he will slither away in some, in some way. You know, the, the, the rumor, I talked to somebody from Hollywood yesterday about the Mark Burnett project that Trump is working on right now. Yeah. They're essentially now going to try to sell Trump on a show. By the way, he, just for our listeners, Mark Burnett was oh, yes. the creator of The Apprentice, so everyone knows. And thus and the had, creator of Donald and Trump. And thus <laughs> the creator of Donald Trump, because as we all know now, and has been very well documented, he is not, was not ever a businessman. Correct. He has been an entertainer, and The Apprentice was just a show that he was on. Correct. But the, the what, what they're talking about now is, is that Mark Burnett is pitching a show where Donald Trump continues to pretend to be president. And oh, criticizes Jesus Joe Christ. Biden every day. That's the that's the that's the brilliant conceit of it. And I got to tell you, Trump will love that. Sure, he'll love that. Oh my God! Sorry, I need a moment. To, like, 
No, what they'll do is they'll take the they'll take Trump Force One or Hair Force One and they'll repaint it in whatever the color scheme is. Did he you wanted. just say Hair Force One? I, 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 I didn't I, make I, that up. Um, but I love it. You should you know, steal they'll, it. They'll repaint it in whatever color scheme he thinks Air Force One should have been, and then they'll put you know Trump, you know, yeah, of the United States of America, whatever it is, yeah. the whatever Trump. the livery looks like. Right. Make America great again. But I want to put a pin in this, not for this episode, but to come back to for our listeners, because we did not get the repudiation of Trumpism that we were hoping for on election night. We have not gotten it. It's not, that is not going to materialize. And I think there are a lot of conversations that need to be had in the near future about what that means for the country and what that means for us as a, as a people. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go, go too deep into that right now, but I do want to put a flag there for sure for future conversations. Well, the division of the country into broad cultural and ideological silos as now, I, I think it goes in three major arcs or three major sections from the 1960s after the, you know, civil rights movement, hippie era, cultural conservatism emerged in part as a response, a backlash to that moment of greater freedom and greater expression, all that. So from the sixties to probably let's call it the late 1980s. Okay. There was a window, you know, it was a cultural thing. It wasn't articulated broadly, uh, you know, through any sort of powerful media outlets from the early nineties through 1996 at the formation of Fox news, there were increasing signs that, that, you know, people were trying to, to build their own cultural bubbles left and right, but mostly on the right, um, somewhat online, somewhat with, you know, specialized publications, uh, the, the rise of Rush Limbaugh in that same window gave people a little bubble where they could live. And that bubble didn't have to be consonant with reality. So in 96, when Rupert agrees to let Roger build out Fox, no one anticipated that by that that by with within ten years of that, Fox would become the single most powerful normative force in the conservative and Republican world. And we started seeing it in polling back in the early two thousands. Where do you get your news? And you'd ask Democrats that, and it would be this you know scattershot thing: CBS, ABC, blah blah blah, CNN, New York Times, or my local paper or local news radio. But with Republicans, starting in about 2000, it was Fox, Fox, Fox. And it grew and grew and grew and grew. And the last time I tested that question, and it was in, and it's been a while because I just gave up testing it. I, I, by that point, I had the answer. I think it was in 2012, I tested it in Missouri, and like 86% of Republican voters said that Fox was their number one news source, and Rush Limbaugh was their number two news source at like 14%. It was nothing else mattered. So that bubble was complete, yeah. or we thought it was. And then along came Facebook. Yeah. And you know, by by the mid-20, by the mid-teens, Facebook became you know, if you weren't watching Fox and you weren't listening to Rush Limbaugh or talk radio, you were on a closed Facebook space that was feeding you more of what you wanted. And so if you wanted to to, to read about, you know, patriotic patriots for Palin, you were going to get a lot more of that. Yeah. And you get more and more and more. Yeah. And the algorithm of Facebook and those two other elements, mm-hmm. those are the things that created 
what we saw on Tuesday. Yeah. This rejection of everything. And, you know, look, we worked very hard to, to articulate how much COVID has damaged this country. Mm-hmm. And I think we did a good job of it. There was also, though, something that we didn't we didn't fully appreciate. And I'm I'm happy to own this. We didn't fully appreciate that even though these people, you know, these 55, 65 pluses who are at tremendous risk of COVID and have seen their friends die and have seen their lives radically altered, mm-hmm. death did not, the fear of death did not overcome the cult-like devotion and the messages they had been fed and the agitprop that they have been you know, mainlining for so long. So this is a bigger fight and a longer fight because of that, that bubble. Yes. So I just want to, and for anyone who's interested in, in understanding how this works, Eli Pariser wrote a great book. Terrific. Called The Filter Bubble. Bubble. It is, it is really, it was, I think the first book to really address what was happening in the tech environment. It's almost, it's crazy. crazy, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And Eli Pariser, just everyone knows has a background in democratic politics and understands the tech, the, the, the filter bubbles that Rick is talking about from a political viewpoint. And so that's, that's why it's a a really valuable read, but I do want to put, and Reed, I know you have something to contribute here, but I, I want to put a pin in this part of the conversation and come back to it because everything you've just articulated, Rick, so well has uh, everything to do with the supply side of this part of the economy. And I'm really, really interested in the demand side of this economy and what's happening to people who want to experience this bubble. They want, they, they want this information. And so there's two sides of this. And I think you just, you just laid out the architecture for a conversation about the, about the supply side. And I really, in the weeks and months ahead, uh, I'm looking forward to really digging into the demand side. Late on Tuesday night, Trump spoke in the East Room of the White House and falsely claimed that he had won the election. Let's take a listen. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list, okay? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. It was a very sad moment, and on election night, I called it a national tragedy. And Trump walked into the East Room of the White House, stood behind the seal of the president, and tried to undermine the will of the American people to steal an election. And this has continued on Twitter since then. On Wednesday, Trump tweeted that he won in Pennsylvania and Georgia and North Carolina and Michigan, and that there was a large number of, and I quote, secretly dumped ballots in Michigan. And just this morning, Trump tweeted in all caps, of course, stop the count. And when I just listened to his voice, I thought of President Snow. Like that's that's what it sounded like. But like, Reed, what was your reaction to that speech and his continued attempts to undermine the election? I mean, that night, I mean, Rick, I think I remember you walking out of the room saying like, I can't, I can't be here right now. Like I, um, I sat there 
mouth agape watching yeah. it. Um, and I had played the role of Trump and the White House in like one of these exercises right, last the summer. Sims, right. Yeah, where, you know, if it was close, this was what we all assumed was going to happen. And, and it did. It didn't make it less shocking when you actually saw it happen, because when you're sitting around with like the dungeon master of election, you know, uh, you know, scenarios talking about, well, this happens and this happens and that happens. It's all very like intellectually interesting. And then you see the president of the United States go into the East room replete with every last bit of campaign paraphernalia, right. the big Trump logos, the flags, the, you know, people standing cheek by jowl without masks on the family, the whole thing, right? Two 30 in the morning, you know, he's probably all hopped up on Adderall or whatever it is. And my guess is, my guess is, is that there were some people, and I don't know who it was, probably family members that were saying, you can go out there and say this isn't over, but don't say you won. Right. Yeah. Don't yeah. say you won. That's bad. Yeah. And yeah, my, he kind of stumbled into that line and then he doubled down on it. My guess is, is that he, he had convinced them that he would do the right thing. And then he got up there and he couldn't help himself. So, um, yeah, again, shocking, not surprising. Yeah. I remember the look on Steve's face too. And I know he's not here with us today, but it was just, you know, the, the, it, it just started to droop in the most like devastating disappointment because we wanted to believe, we wanted to believe he, 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 he could constrain himself. No, I never uh, believed that. I, mean, like, I never believed that, but the, the difference between thinking about it and believing it and seeing yeah. it are yeah, yeah. very different. Yeah. Right. The, the yeah. cinematic version of Trump, he would have been chastened and said, you know, that's the will of the people. I understand it. Let's let the vote count it, work itself that's the through. Disney version. But, <laughs> right. It's the Disney version. But of course he was going to go out because Trump is a gambler. He's a day trader and he's always going to try to pull some shit and he's always going to try to find enough people to believe that shit to get a critical mass. When he walked out there, he was totally off prompter. And, and I think we were talking about that at the, at the time. He was, this guy's just, it's stream of consciousness. It's going it's, to, he's trusting his gut. The damage that three or four minutes yeah. did yeah. to our political system and to the institutional norms of the country. And I know, I know, I know, I know norms are for, are, yeah, are for uh, are, are yeah. li lib shill cucks, <laughs> but um, they really do matter. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that a part of him thought that at that moment he, it would, it would change reality, but it never, it was never going to change reality. Never going to. I mean, now he's flailing on Twitter and he's begging for vote count to stop lamenting that they, they, whoever they, they are, are finding Biden votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And even, he even asked how come every time they count mail-in ballot dumps, they are so devastating in their percentage and power destruction. Like, it's because they're not voting for him. But can you talk about the apparent desperation in the Trump camp? Oh, he, he's bathed in flop sweat right now. I I will say this. I've been poking around some folks I know in, in that part of the world, uh, in, in this sort of Trump adjacent and Trump space. There's a tiny bit of relief that they're starting to admit to. Um, and there's also a bit of, hey, don't hate me. I was keeping the lights on. Which, good luck. Well, we will <laughs> put good, a pin good, in that. Put a pin in luck. that conversation <laughs> because we'll be coming back to that. Let's talk about the Senate. Out of the battleground Senate races, Arizona and Colorado both flipped 
and elected Democrats Mark Kelly and John Hickenlooper. And we were in those early. And we were in those early and hard. And the North Carolina race between Tom Tillis and Cal Cunningham and the Georgia race between David Perdue and John Ossoff haven't been called yet. Uh, the special election in Georgia is headed for a runoff between Raphael Warnock and Kelly Loeffler. The Purdue Ossoff race looks like it's also going to go into a runoff. Um, but Rick Danes in Montana, Joni Ernst in Iowa, Susan Collins in Maine and Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, Lindsey Graham in South Carolina were all reelected. What could an evenly divided Senate or a Republican controlled Senate mean for a Biden administration? Well, look, I mean, Mitch McConnell this morning, um, uh, there was a, a piece this morning. I, I'm sorry, guys, I don't remember where it was. I sent it around the group. Right. But um, that said, McConnell's plan is to deny Biden his cabinet appointments. Whoa. He's going, he, they're saying, you know, unless you pick people we like, you won't get cabinet appointments. Now, I, I will say this. Donald Trump has had acting everything for the last four years. And so, you know, the sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. There's an argument where Joe Biden should just say, all right, fuck you then. I'm going to name my, the people I want as actings. What are you going to do about it? Because McConnell's threat to slow that process down and to slow judicial appointments to, to a halt is one that plays to Mitch McConnell's strength as an obstructionist. The other element of that is going to come down to Biden himself because he still has relationships in the Senate right? with some of the older generation of folks who are not arsonists. They may have bowed down to Trump, but they are not, they're not, they're not into this sort of performative anarchist fuck you ism, the nihilist version of the Senate. They did once upon a time want to be good people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, and Biden has Yeah, a, but that was 1948. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. And Biden has a lot of relationships in, in that space. That may, that may, McConnell may overplay that hand. The other thing that's about to happen is, you know, uh, the, the Georgia races take on an enormous significance now because if you have the Senate mm-hmm. with, with, with a majority. Or even if it's dead even. Yeah. Or, or even if it's dead even. You're, because she, because the, the vice president cannot cast deciding votes on the budget. If I'm, if I'm correct, right? Reed? I have no parliamentary. There's some, yeah, I'm not a parliamentary expert, but sh- there are certain things she can cast the deciding vote on and certain things she can't, but they're going, but McConnell's also already said he's going to obstruct um, things like COVID relief. Suddenly these guys that have been spending like drunken socialist are sailors are going to become fiscal like, I can't believe Jesus. we run up this kind of debt under Obama. You know, oh wait, wait, we we forgot the last four years of of twelve trillion dollars of new debt. Yeah, I mean, it really speaks to like what McConnell cares about is just being in charge. Yeah, right. And yeah. this, you know, and and however he can do that, he just wants to be in power. And this is where. You know, even if he had been minority leader by just a couple of seats, or if he is, he'll find every, you know, thing he can just to be in charge of things. And so, you know, he, he will, you know, probably do some things, but yeah, I mean, like Rick said, I mean, we even saw this back during the Barrett stuff a couple of weeks ago that they said they weren't going to do a COVID relief package because they want to be able to say that they're the fiscal conservatives in 2021, if Joe Biden wins and call them, you know, the free spending liberals. Now, the truth is, as a matter of political strategy, it's not a bad plan 
if you're completely amoral, because Americans are more likely to think that Democrats are free spending liberals than than right, Republicans right, right. are. But I will say this is that, and I think this is where we have a role to play, is that there are a lot of Americans, Republicans, Democrats, and otherwise, who without relief are going to be in a really bad way. And if we believe that, you know, they're willing to accept themselves as victims and look for someone to blame, then we can maybe help them find those people who, you know, are responsible for their tough times. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's turn to COVID very briefly here because I think we have to. In late October, Trump told rallygoers in North Carolina that they wouldn't hear about the coronavirus on November 4th. In fact, November 4th brought the highest single day count of new COVID-19 infections. More than 100,000 cases on that day alone. Experts continue to predict a surge of infections throughout the fall and winter. I mean, even if the election is called, Reed, for Joe Biden today, uh, as as we're taping, Donald Trump will still be the president for the next 76 days. Sure. So what are the chances that Trump or Republican governors... Uh, will take action to protect the American people from the virus. Well, I mean, any governor who's already doing that would continue to do that. Trump, I mean, just write it off. Um, right. Just stop worrying about it. I mean, or I would say this, you're, you have to take almost a fatalist view, view of it, which is he hadn't done anything right now. Like, what do you think's going to, he's not going to find religion before he leaves office. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> right. I would say that, um, yeah, don't count on the feds. You know, if, if you have local protocols in place, follow the local protocols. Don't be an asshole. Wear a mask. What about in Arizona where he's so focused? Well, again, that doesn't do you any good. If you lose your, the election, you lose the election. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Given the breakout of the uncounted or the remain votes remaining to be counted for absentee and mail in Arizona, Trump's total pickup looks like it could be about 12,000 votes. Biden's total pickup could be around 70,000 votes from the math I'm looking at right now. And so the the difficulty of additional screw around and of making the case, and there will be a tip over moment. None of these Republican governors are ever going to say, shut up, Donald Trump, stop it. They're just going to go dark and they're just going to let the process play out and let the, let the, let the mechanics of the vote count end. Look, all politics has a kind of, of moment, a tip over moment yeah. where it's done where the, the wind goes out of the sails, there's no more fight in them. And for Trump, we're, we're really close to that. We are hours from that at this point. I mean, think about Arizona. Just, I know we're, we were talking about COVID, yeah. but just quickly yeah. politically, that Trump can, couldn't help himself from saying bad things about John McCain for t- years. Right. Um, you know, he's, a, he's an icon. Yeah. Um, and then there was a story, I think, yesterday or the day before that he didn't like to go to Arizona because it was so far away and he didn't want to spend the night on the road. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. like how old are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, president of you're the, the president United of the States. United States. And yeah. there is a Trump property in Las Vegas if you wanted to go there. So, like, you didn't want to spend the night on the road? Like, what is your problem? Yeah, boo-hoo. Yeah. Man up. Yeah. And so, like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost him Arizona and, like, you know. Oh. Well, and maybe crapping on John McCain for five years. Wasn't right. so great either. Factor and, there. You know, maybe mishandling the greatest health emergency in the history of the countries, you know. Yeah. It's important not to take stuff Trump says right now at face value. And, you know, that whole, like, take him literally but not seriously. No. No. You have to dismiss it as the rantings of a dying animal. 
and he's in the trap. He's not getting out of the trap. At this point, when we're recording this again on Thursday morning, about you know nine thirty Mountain Time, we are hours from this being over. It is not that there's almost nothing that's going to change the velocity. And and I think the lawsuits they'll they'll file a few lawsuits, but you know since he sent you know Rick Grinnell to right. uh, Arizona uh, with the crack team of Rick Grinnell and um, oh, who else was it? It doesn't even matter. Right. But th- th- these yahoos, <laughs> yeah. they're deploying these people out there, and they're going to scream and stomp their feet and yell about voter suppression. And I think a part of it, and why you have to ignore a lot of what, uh, not a lot, almost everything he says, they are right now trying to establish the stab in the back myth. Why is Laura Ingraham attacking the Lincoln Project on Fox last night? Because we're essential to the stab in the back myth. And we're going to see a lot of that. And this will go down. And Five years from now, you can poll a former Trump supporter, and they're going to say, yeah, election was stolen. They took it from him. They will say it. They will absolutely say it. And, you know, we're going to be over 300 electoral college votes, I'm guessing, by the time this is over. Probably probably might even pass what Trump got against Hillary, which would be a very satisfying thing. Right. Um but they're going to try to mythologize Trump's loss into a victory. And then, you know, it's going to be, we were, we were talking on um, LPTV last night, like each one of these state political parties, Republican parties is owned by Trump and yeah. the Trump family. Yeah. Absolutely. All the yeah. data and everything from the RNC and the campaign is owned by the Trump family. Not by the committee, not by anybody else, but the Trump family. Win Red is essentially Jared Kushner's a managing partner practically at Win Red. So, you know, we was it Stewart or somebody said last night, or maybe it was Michael Steele, that, you know, the the leading candidate to be the next chairman of the RNC is Corey Lewandowski, right? So it's going to be an ongoing criminal enterprise. You want to um, briefly tell everybody why that's such a, like, for those who don't know who well, Corey Lewandowski look, I, is. So here, just, first and foremost, like, I don't care who the right, next sure, chairman of the RNC right, is, because, you know, right. it's a dumpster fire no matter but, what. So that everyone's aware how but far Corey Lewandowski was like, a, was Trump's driver when he first went to New Hampshire in like 2008 or something. Mm-hmm. And he worked, he was sort of a minor character in New Hampshire politics. Jennifer could tell you far more about right. it than I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but he rose to be Donald Trump's campaign manager for a time in 2015, 2016, um, where among other things, you know, he grabbed female, a female reporter and, um, was generally just a bad guy. He has a, he has a reputation for having an extremely short temper, um, and And violent too. Yeah. And we were hoping he was going to run for us Senate in New Hampshire this year because it was going to be a delicious opportunity, but he didn't. Um, (laughs) but the point is, is that like, keep hope alive, Reed, right. (laughs) Even when Trump is gone, the the vestiges i don't even call them the vestiges the tentacles of the trump organization run deep into this republican party and they're not going to go anywhere for a while yeah and a lot of these state party people and a florida guy last night was emailing me and said and said well you know the the chairman of the party joe gruders is the chairman of the florida party he's like well you know he was wasn't really trumpy at first but now he's gone all in and i and he says like i asked him you know how do we reset and he goes no we don't care we won florida you know don jr is going to be here doing a fundraiser for us in january so basically he's like doesn't matter we did good yeah they they're they're they are bought and paid for by the trump world this is and you know pull the scope back you know to a wider aperture for a second. This is the Trumpism problem writ large because policy-free, ideology-free, authoritarian statism and nationalism is easy. It's the empty calories of politics. And 
And there is a belief, there's a conceit that we wasted all that time for uh, for 150 years believing in things. And what we should believe in is owning the libs. Mm-hmm. And we should believe in the culture war. We should believe in, in, in yelling louder and breaking shit. It, it, and again, there is a part of human psychology that loves that. It's fun. It's the house party on a Friday night at somebody else's place. You're tearing it up, right? But it's not a governing philosophy. And it's not... It's not an ideological framework. It's it is almost completely nihilist at the at, right. at its base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why we've got so much more work to do uh, at the Lincoln Project, and why Trumpism is very clearly here to stay. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we've got so to work are we. From, yeah, yeah, folks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for those of you soon. who thought we were about to head into the into the into the uh, sunset, or sorry to disappoint, or hide deep in the tall grass, um, you think again. All right, let's turn to the week ahead very quickly here because uh, I know we've got to wrap up. Reed, it's so it's so weird. I mean, we're all watching the same thing, but is there anything outside of the results of the election that that you're paying attention to before we go? No, I mean, at some point, the media is going to declare Joe Biden the president-elect. He, you know, and then there will be processes in place that will start to take over. We even saw last night, uh, that they've already put in place, the FAA has already put in place flight restrictions over Biden's home in Delaware. It's now a national security defense area. Yep. Um, and so that says to me, the system's working. There are things that happen. Um, it has not happened officially yet, but they're preparing for it. And now, you know, the the organs of government that are responsible for transitioning from one president to another, one administration to another, are starting to move into place. And do what they're supposed right. to do. So there is a there is a government-sponsored and paid-for transition office that is probably turning on its lights this morning, uh, getting ready for folks to flood in from, you know, Delaware into, into Washington, D.C. The military is making its preparations for the inaugural. Congress will start to make its preparations for the inaugural. Um, you know, it'll probably be more like Reagan's inaugural in 84, you know, inside the rotunda than it will be, you know, a yeah. big outdoor celebration just yeah. because of how we are. Right. And folks, if you're curious why Reagan was in the rotunda that year, I was at George Washington University that year, and it was the coldest day in history in the city. Right. And it was like, it was something like 10 below zero in a 40 mile an hour wind. And, right. and they were afraid of uh, people turning into corpsicles on the mall. Right. So, um, and I think that we should assume that Trump will continue to flail about, um, but will, you know, look, uh, Barr's not going down for this guy. Right. Right. No. Most right. of these acting right. and, you know, sitting cabinet secretaries aren't going down for this guy. Right. And so I think what you're going to see is he'll, you know, he'll do rallies, he'll cause trouble. He'll say this, you know, stab in the back, whatever it is, but ultimately, you know, he's going to go because, you know, the, the states are going to certify their results. The electors will eventually vote. And we yep. can talk more about that in yep. coming days and weeks. Yep. Um, and, you know, then then Joe Biden's going to be certified as the next president of the United States under under the Constitution. Yep. Donald Trump's term ends at noon or 11.59.59 on mm-hmm. January 20th, 2021. Yep. He's no longer president, whether he wants to be or not. And I don't believe that any of the organs of government are going to help him continue that just because he wants them to. Rick, week ahead, what are you watching? Look, I'm, I'm watching for the legal maneuvers uh, that are going to inevitably transpire this week to fall on their ass. 
It's not going to work out the way they think it's going to work out. Um, and I think you will see a few more twitches of the dying animal where he uh, declares that state X or state Y is invalid, sees the ballots, you know, and the boogaloos may come out to play. There's a lot of chatter on the alt-right space and the, and the, and the Trump, the armed Trump militia space. Let's put it that way uh, about, how, you know, they're, they're having their country stolen from them, et cetera. So, you know, I am cautious that we may see some violence this week. I hope we do not. Um, I also think you're going to start seeing, uh, the rats leaving the sinking ship at the white house. Um, these people will start trying to sell their books and sell their stories. Um, they will start trying to get jobs in corporate America right away. And their positioning is going to be, I was the truth teller inside. You you won't believe what I stopped. They're going to start trying to rehabilitate their reputations. And we will be there. We will be there to visit with the truth and their history. Thanks, Rick. You bet. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get, and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.